You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. Studies in Perfection, presenting you with the best that has been thought and said. For more audio and video, please subscribe to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast on iTunes, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Follow me on Twitter by my handle, at anarchy underscore culture. And please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com. If you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list, you'll receive a free ebook, A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction, Demystifying Poststructuralism, and Derrida's Science of the Non. And keep an eye out for our upcoming poetry newsletter, The Dial, which serves the libertarian, anarchist, and modern transcendentalist intellectual. We are now accepting poetry submissions and short critical and literary essays. Please see our website at www.culture-anarchy.com for more information. Homophonophobes versus Donald Trump. The left's fear of their, their, and their rapists. By Morgan A. Brown. An abridged form of this article appeared on September 19th on lewrockwell.com. For the full article, please browse the archives at www.culture-anarchy.com. Throughout the 2016 campaign season, I find myself asking a single question over and over with every news story breaking from the anti-Trump media on a daily basis. Did the Donald really just say what I read that the media think that they heard about what someone else wrote that he said? Donald J. Trump is both a racist and not a racist, depending on the source that one consults. His comments regarding the rapaciousness of Mexicans were both factually accurate and wildly inaccurate at the exact same time in precisely different words, articulated in the exact same way. Depending on the statistics that one consults in order to proof Trump's words, one could make the case that Trump made factual statements or gross overstatements of the case against the influx of undocumented criminals. From the very start of his campaign for President of the United States, the Donald found himself embroiled in partially manufactured controversies. Incredulous media personalities inquired amongst themselves. Did the Donald really just say what I think he said? In reality, the question was a little different for radio, television, print, online, and podcast audiences. Did the Donald really just say what the mainstream media read or heard that he said? No matter the issue, no matter at what point we find ourselves in the 2016 election, a singular controversy keeps popping up to fuel the left's clunky outrage machine, which, if there be any justice in the universe, may finally be running itself into the ground. In early August 2016, a little over one year after Trump's original sin doomed coverage of the presidency to 17 months of the media's virtue signaling and race baiting, Democrat VP candidate Tim Kaine still fumed over those words. I mean, the, the thing that has amazed me is the, the depth of his trash talking of Latinos, um, saying that all Mexicans are rapists and going after, you know, Latino immigrants. Trump's diehard supporters decried the quickly rising hashtag never Trump conservatives and leftist reactionaries who were outraged by Trump's immigration comments in his presidential announcement speech 
as PC social justice warriors gone mad. The chronically outraged Trigglypuff seemed to clamber up from university-safe spaces and neoconservative packs, diluted as ever by bitiest media show host, the military-industrial complex, and the machinations of the Clinton Foundation and George Soros, howling abuse at words that were, to most conservatives, freethinkers, and skeptical independents, only marginally controversial. The trembling social justice warriors, in shaking fits of anger and outrage, sputtered acrimonious insults at Trump's alt-right minions like machine guns, rat-a-tat-tatting accusations of cultural apostasy and racial intolerance. As far as the critics were concerned, the Trumpists were polished neo-Nazis who had scrapped their laced-up boots and corduroys for penny loafers and Trump ties. The countercultural alt-right rose to provide balance to the force, shouting down the leftist crazies by holding up their Trump signs and barking, Trump! 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 Two sides of an incredibly divisive cultural debate looked on at the same old man, who was speaking particular words at his podium, words strung together with a very particular trajectory that only he truly understood. The words once spoken were instantly alienated from their ideal form when they hit the press, subject to interpretation, but Trump meant only a single thing. The words were transcribed, distributed, and spoken, but through different signs and symbols. And the patient ears in the audience, consuming news of Trump's speech audibly, along with the outraged eyes that flared over what they saw immortalized in print, found themselves staring across a rift in meaning at the opposing army, divided by the no-man's-land between pro-extempore speech and immutable text. In a rambling, somewhat disjointed piece of populist rhetoric, Trump's campaign announcement speech for the Republican Party's nomination on the 16th of June, 2015, was a winding, vulgar, pro-extempore masterpiece when measured by its impact. Shakespeare, it was not. But the speech rallied the Republican base and a host of disenchanted non-voters who were disgusted by the neoconservative machine that had long defined the Republican Party's decrepit Bush pulpit and its Reaganite religion. The base was now enchanted by a heretical prophet of nationalism who had emerged from the Reagan era cloaked in mercantile greatness, and the base marched to the polls to ensure Trump's primary victory with record turnout. The Donald's campaign announcement speech aired a good bit from the outline that people had provided to the press in advance of the speech that the Donald actually delivered. As Philip Bump of the Washington Post noted, there were 91 prepared words before he announced his candidacy. Instead, he took at least 1,700. 18 times as many words as he originally planned to speak and the press had originally planned to report upon. As such, the Trump campaign never actually delivered a copy of the text of the press that stipulated the actual words that the controversial candidate voiced. There were no teleprompters flanking the stage, and Donald's eyes rarely glanced down at the podium. What the press had received in print as a guide to the speech would prove a scant outline to what followed, and many of the sentences found in that outline never actually found voice. Trump had planned to say the following with regard to Mexico. It is way past time to build a massive wall to secure our southern border. And nobody can build a bigger and better wall than Donald Trump. A country without borders is, quite simply, not a country. Mexico is not our friend. They are beating us at the border and hurting us badly at economic development. They are sending people that they don't want. The United States is becoming a dumping ground for the world. It seems inevitable that, win or lose, history will forever remember Donald Trump as a racist, a bigot, and a xenophobe. Too much propaganda has already been pumped into the public sphere by the mainstream media. Too many resentful career politicians have fallen to Trump's sword. 
Trump polarized the country and divided skeptical consumers of media from the religious suppliers of media. Biographies and histories the world over will render his words, not as provided in his notes, but as he spoke them aloud and elaborated upon them extemporaneously, with a uniformity of purpose and meaning that will cause future readers to blanch when they first encounter them. Whatever name the real estate mogul and reality TV star had made for himself in building his beautiful companies throughout his life, Trump's name will be forever sullied in print for generations and likely vilified by a good many North Americans after he takes office or suffers defeat at the polls. It was that first moment, that first speech, which colored the controversies that arose around his campaign, and his ignorant armies amassed on either side of the Trumpian divide for over a year, both within and without his own party, when stones and missiles filled the sky with witty barbs, hit pieces, and masterworks of propaganda, the hashtag NeverTrump camp always returned to the Donald's first controversial words as first proofs of the sinister intentions that motivated the Republican Party's diabolical prime mover. He was a closet member of the KKK, a compatriot of the racist David Duke, a bigot, a racist, a xenophobe, an Islamophobe. But there was a new class of deplorables arising from the fray which came to define the puritanical media leftists, the homophonophobes. The homophonophobes had an unusual fear, a fear that Trump was Hitler reborn, really he's closer to Teddy Roosevelt, based on the erroneous transcription of a single homophonous pronoun. As a businessman, Trump surely knew one principle quite well, both by precept and by experience. First impressions are everything. And what is most remarkable, from a cultural standpoint, is that Trump's name will go down in infamy for no other reason than that pro-extempore speech is incredibly difficult to transcribe accurately if the speaker utilizes poor grammar and the transcriber must interpret what is said for where the ambiguity in words is most pronounced. Trump's infamy will forever hang upon a lack of parallel structure and the transcription of a single pronoun. That pronoun marks a crossroads, where two political parties first split and afterwards sought evidence to confirm their own pre-existing biases by linking that pronoun to competing antecedents. That perilous pronoun, that word from which Trump's entire reputation depends, is a pronoun that has stumped many a man, woman, and child, which in my time as a grammar professor cost many of my students vital points in ritual examinations and drilling. It is, in fact, the holy trinity of pronouns a tripartite entity governing persons, possessions, places, and things, all joined in a unitary sound. I must admit that I was a little taken aback by the furor, a wonderfully apropos homophone, that Trump's statements about Mexican immigration had raised when their initial impact was felt. In retrospect, the reason that I was surprised can be boiled down to a single fact. I heard Donald Trump's speech. I did not read it. An apolitical man, a libertarian with a mild interest in politics, I did not seek the speech out to hear it live. I harbored no secret hope that Trump would run. After the initial controversy was sparked and hearing only a general rumor that Trump had announced his campaign, I did pull up the C-Stan video online to hear his speech in its entirety just to see if the reality TV star was serious. As a listener, I had not heard anything particularly controversial regarding the state of illegal immigration when listening to the speech. I was surprised to find that I actually thought Trump's comments were on par. I had seen the Pew Research reports drawn from the Census Bureau and Bureau of Labor Statistics showing that in 2011, 11.1 million illegal immigrants already had residence and employment inside of the United States. 
I'd seen the far sides of the debate over immigration and illegal access to welfare programs, both in theory and in evidence, well before it finally spilled over into the political sphere to stay. I rebounded between the closed-door paleoconservative arguments of Marianne Rothbard and Hans Hermann Hoppe and the more laissez-faire approach to open borders pimped by Reason Magazine's editorial staff. And I had read with some concern that two Bear Stearns researchers in 2006 estimated, based on remittances to Mexico, that between 22 and 30 million illegals might actually be residing stateside. It was surprising to hear that nearly one-fifth or one-sixth of Mexico's population might have already crossed the borders without documentation. I had no fear of the undocumented, except anecdotally as a property owner who knew at least two individuals involved in hit-and-run car accidents where Hispanic men fled the scene, creating insurance fiascos for those they left behind. I also imagined what it would look like if 10 states here in the United States were to suddenly be depopulated to a man, the houses, highways, and the fields abandoned to nature and homesteaders. And I wonder what Mexico might think should I find that the denizens of those 10 U.S. states had taken up residence within Mexico's borders, demanding assistance and availing themselves of employment opportunities, all without documentation. I also began to wonder how the Democrat Party's promises for amnesty and $15 an hour minimum wages could ever exist side by side. Imagine for a moment 30 million illegals granted amnesty and full citizenship overnight. And now imagine the decisions their employers must face, who only ever employed them in the first place because the employers could afford to hire illegals only if the employers could also forego the provision of health insurance, minimum wages, and payroll deductions, half of which are paid by employers, beside all of the other ancillary entitlements to which U.S. citizens had become accustomed. Illegals were desirable in the first place because they were not, by law, by entitlement, as expensive as American laborers. Imagine the immediate unemployment that would result should illegals wake up in the morning to find themselves citizens of the richest nation in the world, only to show up to work and demand their $15 an hour wages from employers who now found that they had no more work to offer these fine citizens. Imagine the horror of these newly undocumented immigrants upon finding that they were suddenly too expensive to employ and that a $20 trillion price tag and more in unfunded liabilities had been attached to their suddenly darkening futures since their previous wages, which may have been in excess of the $15 an hour minimum wage in under-the-table payments, had suddenly ballooned on the balance sheets due to Social Security, Medicare taxes, federal taxes, and mandatory insurance provisions. And imagine the hostility that would arise as they saw, skulking over the horizon, the silhouettes of legions of undocumented illegals filing into the country to take up their recently abandoned shovels, picks, and baskets, and earn the wages out of which they had been priced in the process of attaining citizenship. And imagine the host of regulations that would spring into existence in Democrat states, with new Cesar Chavez bullies rising to the fore to demand their labor at cost, patrolling the borders vigilante-style with brickbats, resulting in crumbling enterprises, civil unrest, foreclosures, union agitation, declining wages in an inflationary environment, business failures, and, hence, banking failures, in tandem with the sudden rise in welfare allotments. One way or another, immigration was going to force its way into the public sphere the way it had during the Chinese immigration of the late 1800s and the northward migration of blacks in the latter years of Reconstruction. It was certain, in the absence of deregulation and the abolition of the welfare state, whether the Donald or Hillary Clinton would prevail in 2016, the immigration debate was going to get nasty, and the unintended consequences of heedless multicultural public policy 
would yield heightened states of domestic unrest. And the bad news that was arriving was not all from the socioeconomic side. In 2014, the Huffington Post featured an article by editor Eleanor Goldberg, whose headline had caught my attention and burned its statistic into my memory bank. 80% of Central American women, girls, are raped crossing into the U.S. Basing its statistics upon a fusion report, the English-speaking corporate news agency for the Univision Corporation, by Aaron McIntyre and Deborah Bonello, HuffPo reported a 20% spike in previous estimates for sexual assaults occurring at the border. McIntyre and Bonello estimated the rise in sexual assaults after consulting the directors of migrant shelters near the border. Skeptical of such high numbers and the sources reporting the stats, knowing that rape is often subjectively defined in our Rig Right is Also Rape generation, where campus rape statistics get richly overblown, and knowing that some of the sexual assault cases may actually have been cases of prostitution redefined into sex trafficking by leftist intellectuals looking to lump prostitution and rape into the same bucket for shock value, or that the aggregate might have been blown up by over-eager online reporters looking for clicks rather than facts, I was still horrified that even something like 30% could be accurate, even if we arbitrarily revise the numbers down out of sheer skepticism regarding the methodology employed. If it were only 10%, the numbers would still be staggering. In 2010, Amnesty International reported that women and girl migrants, especially those without legal status traveling in remote areas or on trains, are at heightened risk of sexual violence at the hands of criminal gangs, people, traffickers, other migrants, and corrupt officials. Apparently, the practice of sex for citizenship is so common that coyotes recommend that women take contraceptive injections before engaging in pilgrimage. And when nearing La Arosera along the coast of the Gulf of California, the women reportedly prepare for the inevitable. The practice even has a precise name, Cuerpomatic, or Cuerpomatico, an apparent wordplay on Credit-O-Matic, a Central American credit card processing firm, which means to use one's body, or cuerpo, as a source of currency. I was later to find that Ann Coulter had provided a copy of her yet-to-be-released book, Adios America, to the Trump campaign, which included data drawn from that same fusion report. Whether or not Trump had read the book, I have not. He seemed to have gotten his facts from the same sources I had read. And it was precisely this context in which I heard Trump speaking. It seemed a refreshing break from the kinds of platitudes offered by the likes of the bloodthirsty Bushes and bloodstained Clintons, who I was confident would buy their way to the top of the heap in the 2016 campaign while transforming the executive office into a game of inheritances between their collusive political dynasties. Socialists had been importing socialists where they could not convert a people devoted to liberty in order to stack the votes in their favor. The failed anti-economic philosophy was destroying what was left of the hampered market economy, and the prospects for sustainable immigration seemed dim when the two sides were looking only for paths to amnesty in order to get more big government. So I understood from whence Trump was coming and voicing his concerns, even though I disagreed with nearly everything else that the protectionist and neo-mercantilist candidate was saying. Nevertheless, I understood that Mexico, a region of the world, was not necessarily sending its best. It was not solely sending college graduates and programming techs. It was sending people with real problems, problems to which I was sensitive. And it was sending people fleeing from socialism, burdensome debts, corruption, prostitution, and cartel violence with zero net worth, amongst whom numbered, as it would number in any population of peoples, a good many criminals, drug dealers, and apparently rapists. Some of the rapists were fellow travelers, 
Some of the rape was committed by unscrupulous coyotes, the people smugglers moving Central Americans over the border through deserts and around checkpoints. And none of the rape could fall under the jurisdiction of law, where victims in transit could not, one, reveal themselves as border transgressors to police of either country while admitting where and how the rape had occurred without facing penalty of law themselves as border trespassers, and two, reveal themselves after crossing the border, having all the while suffered psychological trauma from the rapes they had suffered, since illegal immigrants are not documented citizens of the United States, and the rapes had occurred in that lawless state of undocumented illegality on the other side of the border, perpetrated by individuals who were also not citizens, who could not be tracked, and whose whereabouts were unknown. I cannot imagine a worse state of affairs for a woman looking for better opportunities abroad, to be handed to her tormentors and delivered to safety and liberty, and yet find herself looking at punishment for trespassing should she step forward to accuse those who had unspeakably violated her privacy. What a terrible burden to bear. And I further could not imagine, for the unfortunate few impregnated by the migrant predators, what it would be like to cross the border, a single mother without the capital to purchase medical care, and have the issue of that rape be the anchor that tied her fortune to America, to say nothing of the hardships faced by a child with the genes of a rapist who would be raised without a father. What were these sad facts of immigration going to do to the culture of the future? Fox News, The Washington Post, The Huffington Post, The Business Insider, The Wall Street Journal, CNN, Bloomberg News, NPR, The New York Times, and a host of other periodicals, both in print and online, provided transcripts of Donald Trump's most inflammatory comments in his presidential announcement speech that established, in many readers' minds, exactly what Donald Trump was saying. The U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. <laughs> Thank you. It's true. And these are the best and the finest. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. When history tells of Donald Trump's speech in these central points of controversy, it shall not tell the story that I heard that afternoon. Instead, it will tell of a Donald Trump who called the nation of Mexico rapists en masse out of a gross generalization. It will tell of a man who, in the year after he called them rapists en masse, often utilized the word Mexico and Mexicans in a rather vague sense, the way a culturally insensitive man would speak in different contexts, precisely signifying the country, the borders, the continent, the people, the culture, and the language. He spoke of Mexico and Mexicans in the sense that a football fan would speak of a rival team. They're rapists. It is a cold generalization presented as an existential fact, empty of evidence and without footnotes. They, Mexico, and the entire Mexican people, they are rapists. I did not find the statement offensive when I heard it, but primarily because I did not hear a contraction in there, namely, they are rapists. I heard instead a kind of parenthetical aside as an interjection into that pause between bringing crime and the concluding, and some, I assume, are good people. I, like many other individuals, heard the following. 
They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. They're rapists. I heard a possessive pronoun as a gloss upon crime, added as an afterthought. Mexico, the they that was bringing the original subject of the sending, was a subject that was sending people with lots of problems, and featured amongst those people who were bringing drugs were other kinds of crime, like rape, that is, Mexico's rapists. That same evening, the ticker tape of every news media outlet ran the following tagline across the bottom of their broadcast. They're rapists. I remember scratching my head and seeing it scroll across the screen on CNN. That simply was not true. I had not heard that statement. I pulled up the video of Trump's speech on YouTube again. I listened to it a second time. They're rapists. It seemed as clear as day. I even began to dissect the string of sentences. Trump repeats the strain of their bringing three times, setting up a repetition of a subject and a predicate in order to establish a parallel structure for his catalog. But then he breaks that structure mid-stride and changes, according to the ticker tape text, to descriptions and existential propositions. They are rapists. And, though the entire formulation is unspoken, there are some, I assume, who are good people. As I continue to probe the sentences for meaning, the case for the they at the source of the there that I kept seeing on the news became even less convincing. It seemed to me that this was obviously a case of pro-extempore speech gone wrong, combined with media bias and the typical Democrat tactic of calling everyone not on the left a racist or homophobe in order to prejudice good, decent people from breaking ranks with political correctness, lest they too get tossed into that basket of deplorables. Miscommunication had occurred due to the ambiguity of particular homophonic words, or else due to the evacuation of personhood and identity and pronouns unattached to their antecedents. Is Mexico a they, such that it could be a they actively moving in a transitive sense, sending crimes, drugs, rapists, or such that it could be a they that are rapists? Was the they that was sending people the same they that had lots of problems? And how could that be? without suggesting the divorce of personhood, a sending of the spirit out into the wilderness from the host body. Perhaps Trump was saying that the country featured on a map was sending rapists. Perhaps that some agency of an abstract notion of a country was sending people by means of the state. Surely he was not insinuating that the government, or even the agentless and abstract notion of a country called Mexico, invested in every Mexican and immigrant, was the subject that had lots of problems that they were bringing to the United States as a governmental body, a military invasion. The immigrants had to be the ones bringing lots of problems with them from Mexico. Mexico was not sending its soldiers across the Rio Grande, such that we could trace in the soldiers some connection to agency in the day that was bringing and sending at the exact same time. And how should we find consistency in any meaningful transcription of Trump's words, when the Donald had blustered his way through another metaphysically confusing sentence that had divorced the identity of the object of a preposition with us from they're bringing those problems only moments before. They're bringing those problems with us? Shouldn't he have said that they're bringing those problems with them? I'm not going anywhere, such that they could bring those problems with me. I was never on the same itinerary in anything other than a temporal sense, marching inevitably into the future, or with the understanding that we are fellow travelers upon this planet in our annual pilgrimage around the sun. 
was the them that he ought to have introduced, the objective form of the subjective they that was sending people with lots of problems, or the they that was bringing those problems to the United States. What a grammatical nightmare! Nobody but a remedial grammar student would have concocted such unprecedented goulash of pronouns. So why had the news decided upon the worst possible interpretation of Trump's words, even using their choice of pronouns? Why did they select there and tie there to Mexico and all Mexicans, rather than, it seemed obvious, to the ones bringing their problems with them? If the there was in fact the subject containing the rape victims and rapists crossing the border, then how could anyone dispute Trump's comments? And after all of that, how did a uniform interpretation that Trump was a racist and bigot arise so quickly? Was this just media bias? It seemed to me that the American scene was steeped in PC bias, since experience and reality showed that, in the culture of the cosmopolitan left and the chattering classes, the world is divided into left and other, and the other is the basket of deplorables, filled with xenophobes, racists, bigots, Islamophobes, capitalist exploiters, science deniers, big oil shills, and homophobes, you name it. One could read into Trump's words any one of a handful of meanings, as indeed I had already demonstrated in my own bias. But who had diagrammed the Donald sentences as the principled transcriber to verify that what was said matched up to what was transcribed, such that any interpretation could be validated? Were the dishonest mainstream media outlets simply trying to hamstring the Donald from the start? The answer is yes. By colluding to monopolize transcriptions that portrayed his words in the worst light? The answer is maybe? It was yet early in the campaign season, and Trump was already the popular buzzfeed of the Republican primaries to the prejudice of the other 16 candidates vying for airtime. I cruised nearly every media outlet. They all featured the same damning there in their headlines. They each provided a singular and identical text upon which they had based their headlines regardless of the outlet's known, disclosed, or presumed bias. There was a suspicious uniformity of theirs in their reporting. Only Rupert Neat of The Guardian, to my knowledge, captured the correct pronoun from Trump's presidential announcement speech. This was ironic because Neat only paraphrased Trump, capturing the essence of his sentences in an early July 2015 recap of Trump's controversies, rather than direct citations presented as verbatim transcripts. Neat cites Trump as having said the following, They are bringing drugs and bringing crime and their rapists. And Neat also, to his credit, despite the bias evident in the URL, which tellingly reads Donald-Trump-Racist-Claims-Mexico-Rapes, took the trouble to check the figures enough to conclude that there are no centrally recorded government statistics on the ethnicity of convicted rapists in the U.S. sufficient to establish who was most at fault for the perpetration of sexual assaults mid-migration. While this has the appearance of debunking Trump's comments, is the truth that undercuts the outrage reaction to Trump's comments all the same. Again, the task of real hard-nosed journalism would have been to delve into the issue, to sleuth for details, and to present the evidence for or against the case. Perhaps someone should check on Fusion's reporting of a rise in rape from migrant shelters along the border. If the stats were true, the story would be worth investigation to shed light on a major problem for both countries, a real human interest story. The major news outlets had the resources to follow up, but outrage, and it appears the major news stations calculated wisely in this regard, was better for ratings and margins than true journalism. 
If the stats were true, then Donald Trump was right. Mexico had a rape problem, and the immigration debate would have to take center stage in 2016. Perhaps this is what the left wished to most avoid, since they wanted to import the next generation of voters and gerrymander the nation's voting blocks. On the 1st of July, 2015, Trump called CNN to talk to host Don Lemon in order to clarify his comments on the rape question. I found the interview interesting, since it cast a light upon two ships passing each other in the night, looking for the same destination in opposite directions because they had different words in their eyes than in their ears. Trump, citing the same fusion report that I had read almost a year prior through the Huffington Post, had been on the same trail that I had been in my casual news reading. Don Lemon, backpedaling as Trump pressed the host on the issue, clearly was one who only saw their rapists in Donald's immigration firestorm, as featured on the banner during this portion of the interview. Lemon pointed out that much of the rape was better classed as prostitution, as a price paid to coyotes for smuggling human beings into the states. This was certainly selective reading. Trump stated, Because I'm talking not about Mexico, I'm talking about illegal immigration. In other words, the they that was sending people who were bringing those problems with us was not the they that was bringing those problems with us. Don could only hear in Mexicans and Mexico the mestizo race and the Democrat voting Hispanic base, something quite different than what vague nationalistic terms actually signify. Americans are a people comprised of individuals, a people living in a moderate state of market anarchy, a people inhabiting a geographical space, a people of a specific country, a people governed by specific laws and documents, and a people of diverse cultural and races. Americans is no more a race than Mexicans, but Trump was on trial for the presumption that he had imputed a race. And it is not clear that Hispanics and ethnicity are a homogenous racial stock of mestizos. Lemon asked the Donald point blank. Why'd you have to say they were rapists, though, Donald? Trump, it seemed to me, was still confused that anyone had interpreted him to mean that Mexicans in general were rapists, but cut himself off in that Trumpian, backbiting manner of speaking in his haste to get to the evidence. Oh, well, if you look at the statistics of people coming, I didn't say about Mexico, I say the illegal immigrants. You look at the statistics on rape, on crime, on everything coming in illegally into this country, they're mind-boggling. If you go to Fusion, you will see a story about 80% of the women coming in. I mean, you have to take a look at these stories. And you know who owns Fusion? Univision. Yeah. And it was in the Huffington Post. I said, let me get some of these articles because I've heard some horrible things. Lemon then corrected the Donalds and urged that a good portion of the rape cited in those studies were cases of prostitution as a quid pro quo or else a capricious coyote's ultimatum and that it was not fellow illegals planning to take up residents stateside who are raping 80% of the women. Lemon's point was partly true, but hard to chew as a flat fact. A proper journalist would have evaluated which part was true and which part was false and left popular outrage to the left's outrage machine. The Fusion Report did not cite specific statistics, since the rapes had not been channeled through the criminal justice system and thus remained vague. The rapes were subjectively reported by migrant shelter directors, without subsequent criminal investigations to confirm the reports. But McIntyre and Benello, and even Amnesty International before them, had noted a significant portion of the rapes had been committed by drug runners and fellow migrants, even common sense would have to grant that a given segment 
of 11 million people in any population the world over will include its share of rapists, thieves, pedophiles, and murderers. If the number were closer to 22 to 30 million illegal immigrants, the angelic picture of a homogenous army of hard-working Mexicans with noble virtues and strong families, amongst whom were a good many married Hispanic males who chose to abandon their families, ironically, would presume heavenly perfection in an imperfect state of reality. What is the likelihood that 10 states in the U.S. could boast an absence of violent sexual crime? Good intentions of the majority or not, there were sexual predators crossing the border, and that minority of criminals was reported as having a disparate impact on the vast majority of women and children crossing the border, or at least a significant minority of them. This was the first time that I had ever heard the media and the Democratic Party conveniently disappear rape statistics down the memory hole. In fact, illegal immigration holds out a peculiar charm to those with criminal history south of the border. The United States is not policed by the Federales, and so the states offer a permanent reprieve from probation and parole within Mexico. Immigration also carries a peculiar charm to impoverished police departments and jailers, cut costs by sending prisoners northward, or simply ignore their crimes since the victims are on their way to checking out of the system. Lessen the laws, add pressure and stress, change the incentives, relax the deterrence aspect of punitive retribution, and the behaviors characteristic of low IQ males may increase. That's about women being raped. It's not about criminals coming across the border or entering the country. Don insisted, as if the rapes were falling from the sky amongst a population of angels and not linked to the complexities of the illegal immigrant black market. Trump, almost in disbelief, replied with the most comical reply in the history of the evening news. Somebody's doing the raping, Don. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, somebody's doing the, just saying it's women being raped. Well, who's doing the raping? Mm -hmm. Who's doing the raping? Yeah. I mean, how can you say such a thing? In Trump's defense, predicates do tend to have subjects. Somebody is always doing the raping wherever rape exists. Transforming rape into a passive sentence construction leaves the question, who is, in fact, doing the raping? The statistics and evidence both parties were debating in the war of mere words and rhetoric required real journalistic follow-ups and should have opened up opportunities for enterprising young investigative journalists to find out where the facts lay on the border. Instead, it was just amateur hour for another year, where their rapists was to haunt the Trump campaign as the candidate's original sin. The debate solidified for many conservatives the presumption that the immigration issue under discussion have no real solution short of a Trump wall, which would temporarily silence the questions and disrupt the black market and human trafficking. The media outrage was prepping the foundation for the Trump wall that the media almost uniformly abhorred, solidifying the vision as a concrete in the minds of everyday Americans. Even I can see the wall in my mind, a 2016 Hoover Dam project. The idea that a couple party wonks in Washington were going to stop rape at the border by forming another coalition with Mexico through passage of a policy prescription was a joke. And the media's one means of influencing culture to drive attention to the problem, namely, by investigating the controversy to get first-hand evidence, was sacrificed to petty politicking. More than anything, the national press loves to show how it can pressure elections and influence their outcomes by virtue signaling and public shaming and leaving the journalistic work to local stations. Unsurprisingly, the Guardian article that parsed Trump inaccurately 
but perhaps was closest in accuracy to capturing his actual meaning to the best that it can be determined. Was the news source best calculated to provide balanced coverage of Trump's rapists' woe in the American political scene? Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Please make sure to leave us a great review on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, and check in from time to time to look for updates. Beginning in the year 2017, www.culture-anarchy.com will be podcasting issues of The Dial, our literary magazine, for audio consumption at the end of each month. Please send us poems and short essays for review to see your work in our electronic publication and hear it promulgated throughout the world. We do address cultural, political, and social issues with humor, subversiveness, and levity as they pop up, and we will generally feature content with specific thematic structure. Keep an eye out for the upcoming eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, a critique of new atheism, secular statism. Culture and Anarchy also features political cartoons by the editor, and we do accept submissions from listeners and viewers, so if you have political cartoons that you'd like to submit for consideration, visit us at www.culture-anarchy.com to view our submission guidelines. Contacted several media outlets via email for clarification regarding the transcription of Trump's comments as my interest in the controversy grew. In the ensuing months, pundits and hacks battling over the Donald's steadily increasing gaffes kept tracing his racism and nativism back to its original comments upon Mexican rape. Since I am neither a journalist nor a reporter, have never had employment as a researcher outside of academia, where I geared my study towards language and the mundane world of textual criticism, and so I'm ignorant of the transcription methods for reporting pro-extemper speech in today's global media. I was a little lost as to how Trump's speech, which only made faint pretenses to grammatical competence throughout, could be divided neatly into independent clauses, complete with subjects and predicates, especially when, even after they were divided into those independent clauses that had the appearance of grammaticality, they still displayed violations of grammar and clarity in nearly every other clause. I never received a reply from any of the media outlets, but then I came across in the Washington Post a note that sourced the original verbatim transcript that every news source except The Guardian had consulted. The transcript had been provided by the Federal News Service. Not knowing anything about the Federal News Service, I did what any rigorous researcher and former professor trained in the tools of textual criticism and transcription would do. I googled it and checked Wikipedia. The Federal News Service, FNS, is a privately owned company that fills a particular market niche that is vital for a news-consuming public in a democratic society with a gargantuan government supplied with a steady stream of puffed-up dimwits filled with hot air and looking for airtime. The FNS provides transcripts of government proceedings throughout the nation in order to serve mainstream media outlets with quote-unquote verbatim transcripts. This service allows media outlets to obtain records of federal and state goings-on without requiring that company to hire field reporters who, at great cost, will fly across the nation to hear those puffed-up dimwits speak at length about nothing good and plead the fifth to violations of the Constitution in the name of national security 
or else managed disparate resources scattered across local affiliates just to obtain copies of those transcripts that might vary from affiliate to affiliate. Like any organization that employs human beings, public or private, the Federal News Service deserves a little scrutiny to probe it for bias. I searched the muckraking press to find out where the mudslingers had ever mentioned the FNS. In 2012, during the contentious Obamni debates over how best to grow socialism, marginally and slowly, or by leaps and bounds, Breitbart News, not itself an unbiased news source, but one that does have the redeemable quality of squeezing the political establishment for controversy and airing facts and figures that the political elites find uncomfortable once revealed, reported on the bias and FNS coverage of the vice presidential debates. The CEO of the Dolan Company, which purchased the FNS in 2010, had a history of contributing to Democratic politicians and campaigns, 12400 in 2009 and $28,000 in 2010. The Congressional Quarterly Roll Call, CQ Roll Call, purchased FNS from the Dolan Company in 2014 in a bankruptcy decision, and the new owners declared their intentions to get more of their transcripts online, organized into databases in order to increase the transparency of government proceedings by information dissemination. The CQ Roll Call belongs to The Economist Group, which is the same group that publishes the periodical The Economist. The apparent uniformity of transcription that I had seen in the media outlets regarding Donald Trump's actual wording in print versus what I had heard had a simple explanation. The media outlets were passing on the quote-unquote verbatim transcripts that the Federal News Service had provided to every single one of the mainstream media outlets. And the Federal News Service, which apparently did its job efficiently and cost-effectively, was filling in that market niche with remarkable success, as evidenced by the uniformity of reporting. After some consideration, I am fully convinced that no foul play was involved in the first dissemination of the transcript, even though great laziness was exercised by those media personalities who treated that text as gospel. Americans, whether religious or not, proved themselves to be a people of the book after all. In the past, as an English professor, I had often encountered difficulties similar to what the FNS transcriber must have encountered when I had to suggest to students how best to render their poor grammar into precise form, linking pronouns to antecedents, forcing subjects into agreement with verbs, and establishing parallel structures to prevent a loss of meaning and independence in clauses across catalogs and lists. Many times, I simply had to recommend to students a complete rewriting of whole paragraphs, directing their focus towards clarification and pronoun usage, since simple intra-clause edits could never recover the meanings the student had intended to convey to second parties. Just tell me who specifically is doing what and avoid he, she, it, they, and especially there, there, and there, I generally advised. There is a danger in language that is everywhere present because language is a medium of exchange between two or more persons. That danger is miscommunication. Pro-extempore speech, or even casual conversation, is the agent of that danger, but one that we navigate on a daily basis by interrupting speakers in order to clarify their meaning. A political stumper has one disadvantage if he relies upon pro-extempore speech. Nobody interrupts the speech, and when the stumper concludes his speech, he leaves the stage and will only field a couple of questions without necessarily clarifying his actual words in print. Whoever commands the print commands history, and in this case, it appeared that the Federal News Service was going to have the final say on the narrative that wove itself through the 2016 election and the bugbear of race relations that shadowed its progress. 
For over a year, when Trump's reporters were asked as to whether they stood by their candidates' comments about Mexicans being rapists, they generally replied the way that one would expect someone to reply if they understood that the Donald had intended to convey that Mexico was sending their rapists along with their criminals. Not all Mexicans, but some of the illegals for sure. Those looking for confirmation of their bias against the Donald and his supporters only heard evidence that the Donald supporters were racist, open to prevarication, and that the Republican faithful would just explain away evidence of their rapists with convenient quibbles and hedging. This was the kind of talk most of them had heard around their grandparents' tables as children, where lump-sum thinking and out-of-date collective nouns corralled people into racial and cultural categories. The blacks, the negroes, the Mexicans, and the rapists. Donald Trump was a bigot and a racist, and he called Mexican immigrants rapists, without specifying that some were not, even though he had. There was something religious in this level of hysteria. Political animals on the American scene were talking past one another, convinced that they had all heard the same exact words. Facebook friends parted ways. Twitter trolls produced hilarious memes. 4chan and Reddit turned into an alt-right bizarro world. The problem at stake was by no means a new phenomenon caused by the diversity of news formats and the revolution in online media. It is a problem as old as the Bible. Shakespeare himself, the greatest playwright in the English language by far, did not leave us with finished, authoritative playtexts for the works that literary professors pour over today and hold up to students as the heights of English letters. Fire, time, and human error left us with degraded copies of copies of Shakespeare's plays until John Hemming and Henry Condell, two players in the Kingsmen acting company for whom Shakespeare produced plays, used their mental powers and memories to revise the text into conformity with what they themselves had brought upon the stage as players in the 1623 First Folio edition of Shakespeare's plays, approximately seven years after Shakespeare was buried. Memory, innovation, and some elements of pro-extempore aggrandizement that had survived years of market test, not text, molded the reputation that Shakespeare now enjoys in the West. And yet, the text of Shakespeare's plays, to this day, draw heavily from the first folio, and these recollections, not quite verbatim transcripts, are what craft our opinion of plays that we do not know were performed as we now study them, such that they would have attained to a popularity so that we would have a reason to study them. We have an opinion of Shakespeare as given by his players instead of the playwright. Our knowledge is mediated not only by subjective experience, but also by the subjective experiences of Hemming and Condell as co-editors working with five different compositors who compromised and economized when reconstructing Shakespeare's texts. As much as anti-Stratfordian conspiracy theorists debate whether Shakespeare was or was not Shakespeare, and not perhaps the Earl of Oxford, Sir Francis Bacon, the Earl of Derby, or Christopher Marlowe's alias after faking his death to avoid prosecution for blasphemy, this latter individual being my own personal favorite in the conspiracy. The fact remains that no matter who it was who put those works to pen, Hemming and Condell, co-editors of the First Folio, are more important to our contemporary understanding of Shakespeare's cultural impact than whoever it was that pretended to be Shakespeare. The original intent of the text does not matter if the actual text do not exist as evidence of what was said. Nor does it matter who it was that actually was Shakespeare, so much as it matters who it was who codified the texts that we now recognize as belonging to Shakespeare. Despite the actual chronology, 
the FNS wrote Donald Trump's spontaneous speech for him in advance of the delivery. The text preceded the speech insofar as the dissemination of information was concerned. This was like something out of Jacques Derrida's mad ramblings about deconstruction, though perhaps not. Nobody knows what Shakespeare actually wrote except what the players actually reported, and nobody knows what Jesus Christ actually said except for a group of eccentric Jews whose words were transcribed through generations of Greek slaves. But what happens, I wonder, when original evidence of what was said does exist, and the actual text purporting to grasp verbatim the original intent of pro-extempore speech are themselves finite and objective redactions of ungrammatical utterances that can be subjectively interpreted? What happens when those texts are evidence of what may not, in fact, exist, and yet are the objective evidence of what may not, in fact, exist? The answer is simple. Miscommunication, polarization, and a lot of people taking positions on a subject while talking past each other simply because the facts organized into individual brains are being hurled across political divides in words that were subjectively processed with different underlying assumptions. Despite the fact that we had an actual record of Trump's words, human prejudice trumped fact. Irrationalism trumped logical dissection. Deconstruction trumped reason. Trump's speech preceded the text. This much is clear. But the cart went before the horse even then. The pro-extempore speecher walks a razor's edge. If he deviates from the notes that he provides to the press, or he errs from the teleprompter and the precisely worded clauses of speech, crafted to isolate meanings neatly into digestible packages to the extreme prejudice of miscommunication, then the potential for ambiguity, especially in transcription, is manifestly heightened. There is a reason that politics is disgustingly urbane and prone to cheap aphorisms, needless redundancies, and empty platitudes, and why candidates vet their messages against audiences before going public to see what gets the best reaction to appeal to the middle of the base, those who want business as usual, even if that business is regime change, central bank inflation, destructive welfare, wealth redistribution, socialism, fascism, currency destruction, and endless war. It was the same reason why the compulsive dissembler Hillary Clinton avoided the press for almost an entire year in order to avoid anything approaching spontaneity. It is why, whenever she had to face tough questions, she blundered, misstepped, and caused the leftist press, many of whose administrators and orchestrators are former DNC staffers or Clinton associates, to drudge up tuquoque propaganda in fits of ADHD whataboutism. When Hillary's email woes were heightened, or when embarrassing DNC email leaks hit the internet, the propagandists launch at windmills full tilt. But what about Donald Trump's comments about Mexicans being rapists? There is a reason why pro-extempore speakers, often mislabeled as populists, even politicians as diverse as Ross Perot, Pat Buchanan, Ron Paul, and Donald Trump, tear through the neatly prepackaged corruption, set the populace ablaze, trouble the big money donors, rock the press onto its heels, and shred party lines, leaving much miscommunication and polarization in their wake. They talk to their constituents, instead of treating them only with condescension and patrician scorn, mediated by like-minded aristocrats and intellectuals in the media. Platitudes and wonkish speeches utilize antiseptic terms. There is nothing to criticize in principle, since no principles are at stake. Nothing to evaluate but the pragmatism of a policy on a utilitarian margin. 
Neatly prepackaged speeches almost never deliver the passion of pro-extempore speech. This is why, after any argument, most humans retreat to stew in isolation and dream up better alternatives to what was actually said in the heat of the moment, when passion trumped reason. And it is why, in the heat of the moment, we lose track of our premeditated speeches in favor of pro-extempore spontaneity, to strike with precision. Often, we find, spontaneity of that sort leads us to say things that we regret saying, because we lose track of our audience, its feelings, and its subjective appraisal in those moments. The fluctuating skepticism of motives and the interplay of anticipations and timely interjections calculated to cause the greatest impact in return. We get sloppy with pronouns and evidence and tend towards generalizations instead of precise facts. As much as we shadow box to prepare ourselves as conversationalists, we still have the potential at any moment of miscalculating or calculating without most precision. Taking a knockout punch on the chin or delivering a first-round knockout in the opening seconds of a bout. The dominoes collapsed quickly after Trump's speech, and the outrage machine kicked into full gear. In late June, Univision canceled its contract with Trump to cover the Miss Universe competition, which was a financial hit against Trump and Comcast's NBC Universal. Quick on their heels, NBC, Grupo Televiso, Aura, and Macy's cut tie with Trump. In July, Trump announced his intention to sue Univision for breach of contract. His public persona was under assault. His reputation was struggling against the times. The excuse that Univision provided for its break with the Miss Universe competition was that Trump's controversial comments regarding Mexicans, and not the Mexican-born rapists who were actually crossing the border illegally, were highly offensive to Spanish-speaking Univision viewers in the U.S., but probably not to the women who had been raped by those rapists, both of whom actually existed. In August 2015, Jorge Ramos, the Mexican-born American news anchor for Univision and Fusion TV, interrupted Trump during a press conference to ask about his controversial immigration comments and proposals. This was a hilarious farce, since Jorge Ramos and Univision had originally provided the evidence that Trump had utilized when making the comments under question. Trump had already stated that he would stand beside his comments, hedging here or there that he hadn't impugned all Mexican immigrants, and not even all illegals. But for those convinced that he had said they're rapists, and that the government, people, races, and cultures bound up within the borders were the antecedent to that all-inclusive there, Trump looked like he was walking his comments back, whereas Trump saw the outraged press as adding too much to his comments. Trump, having faced a month of controversy with Univision over their, their rapists, which he had pledged to stand by, dismissed Ramos, told him to sit down, and eventually, after protest, to go back to Univision. Ramos protested even yet, and Trump had him ushered out of the press conference in order to move past the interruptions and get to his prepared comments. When the press box complained loudly about Trump's actions, Trump had Ramos readmitted. Ramos, an indignation, reported afterwards that he tried to stop me when he realized that he didn't like the question. Ramos never considered the ambiguity involved, the possibility that he might be outraged for no reason, and that it was his own hyper-irrationality and confirmation bias which had stirred him to a rabid pitch in pursuit of evidence for Trumpian nativism and racism. Trump, never one to temper or frame his words with consistent coolness, doubled down on the misinterpretations. He offered a third interpretation of his speech in print, based on the second interpretation already in the press of what he actually said in the first place. 
irony of all ironies. He decided to issue a three-page clarification of his comments that utilized the Federal News Service's transcript as a source text in order to defend himself in his own words, which were not his, to the dishonest media. The speech that he had spoken, because it was manufactured on the spot, could only afterwards be reconstructed in print for Trump's edification with the assistance of a foreign transcript that the FNS had provided to media outlets, the which had generated the outraged headlines in the first place. But now the transcript was making a complete circuit back to Donald Trump for explication. Trump, the very source of a transcript, which did not source the words Trump spoke because the transcript had a fixed singularity of meaning through static, homophonous pronouns without clear antecedents, became the vehicle of the transcript that misquoted him. The transcripts, which had preceded Trump's speech in popular culture, yet clearly lagged behind that speech in actual chronology, were now passing through a press wormhole to claim their priority in chronology. The resulting clarification did nothing to fix Trump's pronouns and antecedents, and thus confirmed, in the left's already set mind in the hashtag NeverTrump camps, set before any opposing campaign was even proposed, to be fair, the prevailing media bias. On the 6th of July, 2015, Trump released this clarification of his text, with visual cues spliced into the FNS transcripts like stage cues, and even a couple of grammatical quick fixes that Trump was capable of interjecting without having to rewrite the text wholesale. He wrote, I don't see how there is any room for misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the statement that I made on June 16th during my presidential announcement speech. Here is what I said, and yet this statement is deliberately distorted by the media. When Mexico, meaning the Mexican government, sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you, pointing to the audience. They're not sending you, pointing again. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems to us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Trump now unthinkingly claimed the there and thought that he could convey his real meaning without delving into grammar and rhetoric, accepting his own words in the FNS transcript secondhand. In a way, he was accepting a source text that he did not speak, which had contributed to the media bias that was both dishonest and a happenstance of interpretation resulting from homophonous pronouns. The there that is the rapist is still unclear in his revised remarks with their new framework, since there cannot be the there that is sending the people with lots of problems, which is the Mexican government, since the Mexican government is not bringing anything into the United States because Mexico is not entering the United States, such that it could bring anything. The illegal immigrants are bringing those problems with them. Despite his reliance upon the FNS transcript's blunder, Trump did take issue with the meaning he had intended to communicate. He wrote, What can be simpler or more accurately stated? The Mexican government is forcing their most unwanted people into the United States. They are, in many cases, criminals, drug dealers, rapists, etc., this was evident just this week when, as an example, a young woman in San Francisco was viciously killed by a five-time deported Mexican with a long criminal record who was forced back into the United States because they didn't want him in Mexico. This is merely one of thousands of similar incidents throughout the United States, 
In other words, the worst elements in Mexico are being pushed into the United States by the Mexican government. Part of what Trump stated was true. Kate Steinle, a young San Franciscan woman, was murdered by a five-time deported Mexican without documentation. The evidence was indisputably true. How, though, could that evidence provide proof of what he had said before that evidence actually existed? Trump did not catch on to the trouble caused by his homophones and pronoun antecedent woes. He was actually investigating his own original statements on behalf of the press to a disbelieving press. But what is more germane to the subject at hand, and more particularly entertaining, Trump again displayed a lack of attention to his pronouns antecedents in the same way that he had displayed that inattention to them at the crucial moment in his presidential announcement speech. Trump notes that the Mexican government is forcing their most unwanted people to cross the border, and that they are, in many cases, criminals, drug dealers, rapists, etc. The they, in the second sentence, has the potential to pour more gasoline on the flames. Is the they the Mexican government or their most unwanted people? I would never have allowed a student to submit that sentence in a final draft of a basic composition unless I had set the bar for that student quite low. This was an amazing recurrence of radical ungrammar calculated to confirm everyone's pre-existing biases a second time over. Still, the evidence Trump provided, which did support what Trump had originally intended to convey on the 16th of June 2015, did not fit the narrative that is now plastered all over the internet and the cable news. Trump's Republican colleagues, who railed against political correctness, virtue signaled through what was left of the primaries, slandering and libeling Trump as a racist for his words against Hispanics, even those Hispanics who were, in reality, crossing the border after committing or suffering rape and route to the United States. The FNS transcript seemed capable of moving the world as it trespassed over the border and crept into foreign tongues. Univision reported Trump in Spanish for its Spanish-speaking readers and viewers. Ellos están trayendo drogas. Está trayendo crimen. Son violadores. There could be no doubt. They're rapists in any tongue, in any country, on any continent. No moral man, woman, or child on the other side of the would-be wall would harbor much sympathy for Donald Trump's case, except perhaps amongst the women caught in brothels on the border or sitting in silence within the states, ignored by the navel-gazing press, when media outlets presented a single translation of Trump's words, unaware of the transcription ambiguity that was no doubt propagated by news media outlets because of a singular reliance upon the Federal News Service and its particular grammatical predilections. Understanding his interpretation of Trump's words, one could not fault Ramos much for his virulence regarding Trump, causing him to query, ¿Por qué habla de los mexicanos con tanto odio? That is, why does Trump speak of Mexicans with such hatred? Then again, there is much to criticize in Ramos's incompetence as a journalist, as well as the network that did not have the standards, or people with principles, in place to check the outrage machine with facts and skepticism. Ramos found verification for his bias and did not look for clarification of the points. Why waste the perfect opportunity to virtue signal and play the victimization card? There is so much money to be made in that racket. Skepticism, unfortunately, is now a dirty word in journalism, where party hacks masquerading as reporters look to confirm bias and never get to the root of things. Nobody posed the vital question to the Donald. 
When you said there, did you mean they are or there? More uncomfortable questions would have arisen on both sides. Who is doing the sending? Who is doing the bringing? And indeed, who is doing the raping? Somebody was doing the raping, and the raping was going to have very real consequences in the future when the mothers of anchor babies were raising a significant portion of the population in Democrat-controlled states where minimum wages were going to price those families out of the market if amnesty arrived under a Clinton presidency. If one could pose the pronoun question to Trump today, or even to travel back in time to pose the question after the initial furor arose, could one trust that the Donald would source his meaning accurately to express what were, it seemed, rambling statements, possible non-sequiturs, and questionably independent clauses? To convey a clearer sense of what he meant, Trump would have to revise his statements, link his pronouns to his antecedents, establish a parallel structure, and altogether redraft what was said. Trump would have to travel back in time and murder the Trump who spoke the words that we actually heard. And presumably, we would each have to travel back in time and assassinate our former selves in order to hear the revised speech with new ears and without the benefits of memory to hound us with that alternative interpretation we obtained and what we thought that we had heard the first time around. The Trump campaign attempted damage control, but it was a damage control that did not necessarily display a knowledge of grammar and rhetoric, or even of the initial outpouring of ungrammatical utterances in the midst of pro-extempore speech. The damage control attempted to soften the blow not of what Trump said, nor yet of what his audience heard, but instead attempted to soften the blow of what Donald Trump thought about what the Federal News Service wrote that Donald Trump had said, and that the media had read that the Federal News Service wrote that the Donald had said. Recovering original tent is and was an impossibility, for humans are capricious beings who calculate the impact of their words with varying levels of success. We act in the present to obtain future goods on the margin, but we do not know that those goods will relieve our present uneasiness as we now evaluate that uneasiness with the alternatives available to us. The alternatives are ever-changing, and every action, even apologizing for misspeaking, is an action looking towards a future understanding of past events. The truth of the matter is that the truth about Trump's real meaning does not matter anymore. The statements must be evaluated for evidence and correctness. If they are not analyzed according to the evidence, then what arises is a veritable doctrine of original sin. Trump would, if a time-traveling journalist were to go back and probe his there during the initial immigration firestorm, no doubt side with the faction would better support his argument and lessen the media outrage, as would any speaker with much to gain and much to lose. This is, in fact, what the Donald actually did. The original meaning of what Trump had said, or what someone said that they had read that someone had heard and transcribed that he had said, that is the only standard for interpretation left, a completely relative and bias-confirming standard, unless facts and evidence are utilized to prove the implications of what he had said in any of the cases. While Trump can be criticized for impreciseness and a lack of grammar and coherent composition, facts and evidence are on his side. Not all Mexicans are rapists, and nobody actually believes that Trump believes that all Mexicans are rapists, except for the political operatives who are still looking for confirmation bias because they are themselves religious leftists who see the world as left and other. And nobody believes that all illegals are angels, or that if 80% of the women are raped as the price of passage, the women and children issued from that conflict will be well-adjusted, have supportive family structures, 
will find secure futures and will assimilate with a moderate effect on crime rates. Nobody in either prevailing faction actually believes what they are saying to counter the narrative that they believe the other side is raising only in defense of base ignorance or prejudice. It is a game of hypocrisy headhunting, not of sleuthing for facts and evidence with a skeptical mind. The game is being played by a host of pseudo-intellectuals who actually believe that they are smarter than the rest of us, the skeptical basket of deplorables. What is the likelihood that it was all a big misunderstanding? and perhaps an intentional misunderstanding on the left's part, shared by respectable neoconservative pundits like the Bill Crystals and Bushes of the world after Trump pulled down the pillars of Dagon and buried Jeb in the rubble, and not the gauntlet that both sides now view lying on the ground, their rage stirring an outraged breast, each faction wondering which side actually threw the damn thing down in the first place to touch off the Twitter wars. The likelihood is rather high that the entire brouhaha is the result of miscommunication and confirmation bias, not disinterested journalism looking for facts and evidence, but nobody cares in the realm of politics. Politics is about scoring points and securing favors, not discovering truth. And when the press becomes the agent of scoring points and securing favors and not discovering truth, then the press is no longer the press. It is agitprop. It may be divided agitprop, the agitprop of faction, but it is propaganda nonetheless. Though the freedom of the press is a vital freedom in any peaceful society, it is not the particular factions and corporations who claim the title of the press who keep us free. It is the anarchy in that production of the press, the peacefully warring factions, conflicts, biases, and prejudices. But in our own age, the press is weaponized by political parties until language is a way of counting coup in the game of endless hypocrisy headhunting. When the game is being played without a set of fixed principles, it is a game of cultural relativism and rule gerrymandering. It is a game of gotcha. It is a game that is played by corporate megaliths who are staffed by political operatives and former party elites that grant those corporate megaliths exclusive access to the political players they wish to interview. It is a game of banalities, a game that weighs a vote for the Iraq war in the Senate and a decision to topple Gaddafi's stable regime against a comment about the Iraq war by a private citizen posed on the Howard Stern show, which is interjected in between segments featuring porn stars talking about sex toys and strict club grind sessions. It is a game between the bombastic and authoritarian real estate mogul who has trouble standing on steady ground since he cannot keep both of his feet out of his mouth at the exact same time, and the infinitely corruptible, authoritarian, socialistic, shrewish, perjuring, drone-striking, bribe-taking, regime-changing, fainting, email-deleting, FOIA-request-circumventing, race-baiting, border-abolishing, habeas-corpus-suspending harpy of a former Secretary of State whose smart power politics unleashed the migrant crisis upon Western civilization, setting the stage for generations of conflict, disaster, terrorism, cultural upheaval, and civil unrest. There are no winners in this game, but at least if Western civilization is to crumble, collapse, and pitch full tilt into its collective decline, like a Hillary Clinton marionette center stage at the 9-11 memorial, emerging momentarily from Chelsea's apartment for a convenient photo op in the race to the bottom to signal that everything is fine, no need to panic, 
At least it is a decline that has nevertheless been quite entertaining and thought-provoking in its revelation to date for reasons not at all related to how either big government candidate shall reform public policy and tax codes to increase the debt and destroy the currency while hastening that decline. At least the show has been a hit, with record ratings, campy writing, and hilarious plot twists as we round the corner towards that final punchline where the media is banking on the millions, perhaps billions, to be made en route to November sweeps. As we near the September debates, we can rest assured that we have not heard the last of Donald Trump's original sin. We will not hear of Deutsche Bank's collapse, the impending collapse of euro markets, the Italian banking crisis, the Fed's feeling of a stock market bubble with outrageous asset sheet inflation, a bond market ablaze with speculation on future financial losses, or Janet Yellen's desperate attempt to throw the consequences of eight years under Obama's ZERP policies on the poor schmuck, silly enough to succeed him, ignorant enough to believe that America is in an economic recovery, and that any of the proposed presidential platforms mean something substantial against what is to come. But this time around, when the original sin is raised to discredit Trump, perhaps we can find a little humor in its resurgence as we watch these power-drunk Alexanders fumbling for the brazier in order to lay waste to what little is left of each other's reputations. I begin a little better to understand why Nero's first thought was to coolly reach for his lyre as he saw the glow of a fire outside his palace walls, to pluck its strings lovingly, and to sing a little ditty as the decrepit empire burned to the ground around him, reducing the labor of the generations to ash and rubble. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. Thank you for tuning in to the Culture and Anarchy podcast. Subscribe, leave us a great review, and share this podcast with your friends so that we can continue to bring you the best in audio content.